Okay, good morning. If you want to grab your Bibles and open them up to 1 Timothy. Whoa. Sorry. If you want to turn to chapter 5, we'll be looking at verse 17 here in a moment. Uh, this sermon series, 1 Timothy, I entitled uh, Entrusted. Entrusted. And what, what I meant by that, we had a picture for that on the website, entrusted like a baton being passed. Like Paul's pa- passing to Timothy, he's passing to him what he had been entrusted with. What's first off was the gospel. He's like, this is the gospel. This is sound doctrine. This is what you need to be about. As Paul had that ministry upon himself, he was passing it on to Timothy. As we've seen as we went through this letter in Timothy, also not just uh, the gospel, sound doctrine, also like how are leaders to be chosen and picked within the church? How are you to care for widows? We looked at the past few weeks. How are you to care for one another? And so every church down the age has been entrusted with that same thing. The gospel, sound doctrine. And, and, and so as I was thinking about this, this picture of a baton being passed, it's not, uh, it's not actually like a, an athletic contest that I have in mind that we've been entrusted with. It's more like, uh, I don't know if anyone has ever seen the movie 1917. 1917, this war movie at the start, this soldier gets this information that he needs to pass on to other people about this attack coming. And so the movie is kind of filmed uh, first person as he runs over like no man's land, as he's being shot at, as bombs are dropping, and he needs to pass on this information to the next person. I think that's actually more of a, a picture of what we've been entrusted with or how we deal with it in the life that we live. This is our time to be the church, to be faithful to what God has entrusted to us. It's not easy. It's not an athletic event. It's more like running through no man's land. The battle that we're in, if we love Jesus Christ, we want to live for him. We have the world, the devil, and our own flesh that we're fighting against. And so every time, though, we come in on a Sunday morning, it's like almost like taking a break from that battle. Let's be refreshed. Let's encourage one another. Let's build each other up again, and let's go out and keep fighting. This is our time. We have been entrusted with it. What are we going to do with it? So I just want to, again, put that before you. Looking at First Timothy, thinking of entrusted, what has been given to us, this is our responsibility. This is our time as a church. Will we be faithful with what God has given to us? And I, and I pray we will be faithful to his word by his spirit to do his work. Uh, before even reading the scripture, again, I'd just like to pray, if you'll bow with me. Oh, Lord, you've just given me this picture of, of what our responsibility is, each one of us, and as a church together, corporately, Lord, we have been given your truths, we have been given sound doctrine, and I pray you would help each one of us be faithful. I pray you would help us be true to your word. I pray you would give us, as we already prayed, ears to hear what you'd have to share with us. I pray we would be refreshed in you, not only preaching of your word as we take the Lord's Supper later. God, do your work in us. I pray any who are, who are just beaten up, who are feeling down, that by your spirit you would help them fix their eyes on Jesus Christ and be refreshed here this morning in you, O oh God. I pray those who are, who are broken and struggling, relationships, marriages, 
Oh, Lord, may you minister in such a way as only you can. May you do a holy work among us this morning, God. Build up your church. Strengthen us again that we be able to go out and be a light into this dark and dying world. Oh, Lord, this is something we cannot do, but we ask that you would in your kindness and in your mercy, oh, Lord. Build us up again by the preaching of your word here this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, we'll be looking at 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 6, 2, talking about giving honor to leaders inside and outside the church. If you want to stand with me as we read God's word together. Picking up in, in 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, And of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved." May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. So again, I've I've titled this message, Giving Honor to Leaders Inside and Outside of the Church. As I was looking through this scripture this week, I was actually, I'm like, how do I, how does 6, 1, and 2 fit into the passage? It doesn't really, Paul doesn't really address that later on. We'll see that next week. It kind of seems like it comes out of the blue But then I realized, oh, it's actually talking about honor. And that's actually a theme throughout chapter 5 into the start of chapter 6. If you were with us a few weeks ago, Paul talked about in 5 verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. As we're going to look at this morning in in 5 verse 17, he talks about elders who rule well be considered worthy, worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then in 6 verse 1, talking about bond servants uh, to their masters, their masters are worthy of all honor. So actually there's this thread running through all these passages of how do you give honor to people, different people in different situations. And so what I see here is it's talking about giving honor to leaders. First we're looking at inside the church and then briefly looking at outside the church as well. So starting in verse 17, I want us to see 17 to 18, talking about giving honor to elders. If you'll notice, verse 17, it says, let the elders who rule well, 
Uh, and every time you read about elders in the New Testament, it's always plural. It's like not an accident, it's always plural, because me, myself, and I is not a good discernment process, right? There's not wisdom. You're like, yeah, I gathered together a group. You're like, who was it? Oh, it was me, myself, (laughs) and I. No, you want to have other people, other voices, other wisdom speaking into it. So every time we see elders in the New Testament, it's always plural, more than one. So it says here, let the elders who rule well Other translations, direct the affairs of the church well, who are good leaders. Another translation, let them be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so just think about this for a second. Before we look at double honor, first off, all leaders, all elders should be honored in the church. Paul talks about this elsewhere. I can just, if you turn your Bibles just to the left, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, Paul mentions this to them, to the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. He writes this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And there's other places as well. But again, so all honors should be, all elders should be honored in the church. But Paul here is talking about a specific group. And he says, let them be considered worthy of double honor. And when he speaks of double honor, as we see verse 18 is going to tell us, he's kind of speaking more specifically to a monetary benefit, where we would actually get the word honorarium, right? Of someone, maybe someone speaking and being given a, a financial gift for doing that. And who are those who should have received double honor, especially, or those specifically, who labor in preaching and teaching, those who labor, those who work hard. I love what MacArthur says here. I kind of wrote it down for myself, but I'll I'll read it to you guys too. It encourages me, it exhorts me. This term, work hard, is from a Greek term, which means to work to the point of fatigue or exhaustion. It does not stress the amount of work, but rather the effort. A man's reward from God is proportional to the excellence of his ministry and the effort he puts into it. Excellence combined with diligence mark a man worthy of the highest honor, laboring, working hard. I've said before, Acts 6-4, the apostles said, hey, we're going to devote ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the preaching of the word. And I'm like, that, that's my main ministry. That's, that needs to be my main focus throughout the week. I'm in the scriptures. I'm in commentaries. I'm in prayer. I'm reading different translations, wrestling through what is the text so I can bring you the, I believe this is the word of God. And so that's what I need to be about. I want to, as I see this, labor hard in this. But it says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And just to highlight, it says, as we looked at before in 1 Timothy 3, 2, elders, all elders, are to be able to teach or first, or Titus chapter 1, verse 9, able to like uh, talk about what is sound doctrine. Proclaim sound doctrine and then kind of rebuke those who are teaching something different. So all elders need to be able to teach, but not all, all elders preach. And I'd say the difference between teaching and preaching, well, one, preaching is more of an authoritative, an exhortation, a thus says the Lord uh, type message, preaching right to your heart. Not, not my own message, but this is, the, this is the Lord's message. And of course, even standing up here, I'll be teaching and preaching, and the two things are combined. 
But again, we would see if they're saying, okay, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. It's saying like not all elders are going to be preaching. Or else why would he make that kind of point to the side? And again, I, I said this double honor refers to kind of monetary uh, honoring. And if we see that, because we look at verse 18, if you look at me, look at it with me. For the scripture says, notice Paul's appeal to what he just said. He goes to the scripture. The scripture authoritatively guides our understanding on all things. I love, so Paul's like, hey, he makes a statement because the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. He quotes two places in scripture. The first is from Deuteronomy 25, 4. We, we've all had our ox, you know, like crushing the grain, right? We've all experienced that. <laughs> no, no, we haven't. So just to read from a commentary, thinking about what that means, what that looks like, threshing was the process of separating the, hu- the husk from the kernel of grain. The threshing floor was usually hard-packed dirt surrounded by a curb so the grain would not fall away. One method was for the ox to pull a sled over the grain to break the husk apart. The sled usually had bits of rock and metal attached to the underside with rocks or people on top for weight. And so as the ox is crushing it and like opening up the husk, it's like don't cover their mouth. Allow them to eat from the work in which they're doing, right? I think we all get it. It's okay what Paul is saying, taking something that literally happens, taking a spiritual reality. It's okay for a leader in the church who devotes himself to this task to receive provision from it. Paul says, with greater clarity, quoting the same place in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 to 14, he says this, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the ox that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? In verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so before we even looking at the second quote, I just have to say, my family and I are looked after by our church. Like we're, we're walking in this. It's not something that we're just hanging and we're like, oh, we need to do this. No, we are doing this. This is kind of the scripture that would say this is why we do it. Of course, though, For like a bigger picture, our situation in North America is different than the rest of the world. And so it's not the norm around the world for pastors to kind of have the church supply their every need. Financially, they just can't do it. Most pastors are bivocational and and, and just need to be. We're in a unique circumstance within North America that we're able to have all our needs met by the church. And we're very blessed to be able to do that and blessed to focus on it. But again, the second quote kind of says the same thing, that, you know, it's okay to pay the one who who does the ministry in this way. The second quote, the laborer deserves his wages, says, it depends what Bible you have. If you have a red letter edition, you're like, that's Jesus. (laughs) Paul's quoting Jesus. He's quoting from the Gospel of Luke, 10 verse 7. If If we had turned there, Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 guys to accomplish his ministry. And he's like, don't take any money with you. Don't take anything with you. As you go, like, they'll provide for you. You'll go stay in a house, and if they feed you, hey, the laborer is worthy of his wages. But it's interesting that Paul here quotes um, the Gospel of Luke. It's just like in, in a letter 
that was to become scripture, 1 Timothy quotes Luke, which it, maybe it was, the gospel was already circulating around that time, that it was this well-known, this is what Luke wrote about who Jesus was, what he did, and what he accomplished. But of course, as we talk about, hey, honor the elders, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, like pay them monetarily, there's also what we're talking about next week and what was said before, that an elder should not be a lover of money. And that's what we're looking at next week. And so, of course, in the letter, those things are held together. And, and we're going to talk about that more next week. So that is the one way we're to honor elders within the church, within this particular passage. If you look at verses 19 to 20 with me, it's actually more about taking honor from elders. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Do not admit a charge. Do not receive an accusation. Remember, Timothy uh, was in a situation where he actually, there was like people who were in the church who were teaching false things who he needed to actually kick out of the church. Some had already actually been kicked out, but so he couldn't just come in and like, hey, I heard one person say one thing about you. No, you had to have two or three witnesses. And the reason you had to have two or three witnesses is it was required in the Jewish culture to substantiate a claim, to give it credibility. We see this in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15. And this would kind of be a, a stop so then someone who just had like a personal vendetta against an elder just didn't like maybe something they were doing and just tried to go after them. No, you needed two or three witnesses to substantiate the claim. And of course, I don't know if, if any of you, if you've been reading in Matthew lately, you're going to start to like, oh, wait, I've read this before. This is talking about church discipline. I'll just turn there with me if you'd like. Matthew 18. Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. Jesus wrote this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. In Timothy, Paul wrote in Timothy, we don't have that step. We have the next one. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, and if the person refuses, we're going to look at this in Timothy, but here, what does Matthew have to say? 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Like, treat him as a non-believer. Share the gospel with him. And I want you to see just in verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. A very misquoted a verse, it's, so it's actually talking about church discipline. It's not talking about like the church gathered, you have a prayer meeting that no one comes to. And there's, there's two, hey, well, we have the churches here. There's two or three gathered. No, it's actually talking about to substantiate a claim against someone that they're in sin. Where two or three are gathered, like God's like, yes, I'm with you. And, and, and there's a judgment that's coming. And so what, what's the purpose? Again, uh, going back to 1 Timothy, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Remember, the whole purpose of bringing the two or three witnesses is for the, the elder, the person, to repent. It's like, hey, we have more people. We, we've seen this in your life. You're doing this. It's another opportunity to, like, for the person to repent, to turn from their sin, to seek the Lord. 
I think this is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. That's what we want, without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death, where someone like, hey, just feels bad that their guilt is being publicly known. And so if they're not in that step, taking two or three witnesses to them, you have to go on to the, the next step. They're in verse 20. As for those who persist in this sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Again, this is if the elder didn't repent. Rebuke them. But again, the, the, whole, the rebuke, even in front of everyone, is a sense of like calling them to repentance, calling them to turn back to the Lord. And maybe it, maybe it seems harsh to you that this would happen. Again, we saw that step within Matthew 18 already. We know in James 3.1, he said, Brothers, not many of you should presume to be teachers, because you know that you, we who teach will be, will be judged in a stricter sense. As a leader in the church, as someone who would teach, this is what we're being held to. We've, if you know the book of Galatians, you know that Paul actually at one time publicly rebuked Peter. And not in the sense of, of in the church discipline way, but like Peter was there in, in the church at Galatia, and then certain men came from, from Judea, from Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden Peter was only with the Jews who were circumcised, and he was being a hypocrite. And Paul like publicly rebuked him, like this isn't right. Not to shame him, but to show him, hey, hey you're in wrong, and to bring him back to what is right. And of course, we need to have leaders above reproach. So if there's sin happening, it's going to start to affect everything. It's going to affect the purity of the church. Because what's the reason of rebuking the elder? As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. This fear is, I think, a fear of God. An increased understanding of the severity and damage of sin. There's a guarding of the purity of the church. Robert Yarborough says this, Timothy should be protective of the elders. Verse 17, 19, talking about giving honor, but not to the point of cronyism or an old boys club. In recent generations, perhaps throughout the church's modeled history, too many church structures have covered up corruption by priests and pastors. Right, think about from that angle. If there's, there's sin happening, there's things that need to be exposed, we need to do that. And not just like, oh, they're a leader, we'll just kind of hide that somewhere else. We've already seen the damage that's, that done, that's done within the church, uh, looking at their history. And think about this call for Timothy. Do you think this would be easy to go in to rebuke elders and leaders who are walking in sin? Like, what do we already know about Timothy. 412, we know he was young. People were looking down on him because of his age. Because of that, we know he was actually probably scared or timid at times. 2 Timothy 1.7, later on, Paul wrote this letter, but he says to Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Why did he write that? Because Timothy was scared. He was fearful. He needed to be a reminder. That's not the spirit that God has given you. So, Knowing this task, Paul knew Timothy needed more encouragement to do this work that he had called them to. And I think we see this looking at verses 21 to 22. We talked about honor elders, and that's kind of what it looks like. We talked about when to take honor away. 
But I think that's a, that's a really hard thing to do. Like maybe fear of man can get in the way of doing that. So then there's this next section. I believe we want to see here, we want to honor God above leaders. We want to honor God above leaders. Look at verse 21 with me. Paul writes to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So think about this. If you have something against an elder, they're in sin, you need to bring two or three witnesses to give them that charge, to repent. Now Paul's saying, I don't know if you notice it, he's calling on God in heaven, Christ Jesus and the elect angels, two or three witnesses to give Timothy a charge. He's like, I'm not just saying this on my own. That's not some passive aggressive thing. He's like, actually, God is watching in heaven. Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, the elect angels around the throne. They all see the charge I'm giving to you, Timothy. This is what you need to be about. If you have a fear of man, get rid of it. You need a healthy fear of God who's watching over you. Maybe Timothy was like us and could procrastinate with the hardest tasks. I don't know if anyone deals with that. Sometimes, man, I have so many things to do. It's like I, I just, it's hard to move forward at times. God help me. But Timothy needed to hear that. I, I hope, actually, I don't know about all of us, can we be reminded this morning that all we do like as we leave this place is in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Like Monday morning, whatever you're doing, is in the presence of God in heaven, Christ Jesus and the elect angels. And just take for a moment, let's think here, well, why is Christ Jesus there? Well, we know because the Son, who is eternal, was, came to earth, born of a virgin, clothed in human flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he's praying for us, interceding for us. And that's how we can have a right relationship with God because of what Jesus did. So though there's, like, there's an intensity of thinking, like, man, God, the Father, Christ Jesus, the Son, the elect angels are looking down at me, Remember why Christ Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, because of what he already accomplished on the cross. So let that also be a great encouragement to you. And why was Paul telling this to Timothy? He says, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality, to keep them without any bias, without any favoritism. Without this term partiality, Robert Yarbrough says this, it's a courtroom term and would be described as a crooked procedure, deciding an issue in advance based on personal preference, preference or taking sides. Like say a, a courtroom's happening and the judge knows that person, their buddies, they're like, oh yeah, you're, you're getting it off. That's partiality. The scripture says a lot about partiality, a good place to go. I mean, another time is in, in James' book, James chapter 2. God does not show partiality, but like if you have someone come into your midst, someone who's poor and someone who's rich, and if you start giving attention to the person who's rich and in better clothes, like you're going against God, you're going against God's heart. Do not show partiality. Paul here, though, he's talking about don't show partiality to leaders. He mentions something similar 
In Galatians 2, 6, Paul talks about his time. He went to Jerusalem, and he was telling the leaders of what the gospel was that he was sharing. By love, he says, but I don't really care who they are because God shows no partiality. God's not like, oh, the leaders in the church, like they're going to have, I'm going to let them get away with more stuff. No, God shows no partiality to anyone and is completely just in his judgments. He's like, Timothy, remember this. No favoritism, no bias. Don't allow outward appearances to determine leadership positions or, or how we treat one another. Again, how do you determine who should be an elder? You go to that list in 1 Timothy 3, these character requirements, Titus chapter 1. But it's like, hey, Timothy, it's actually God's honor above all. And we, we need to remember that too, I think, in our lives. It's God's honor above all. Kind of taking that same thing, uh, that same charge, fleshing it out in verse 22, Paul continues to Timothy, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Like, don't rush leadership. Laying on of hands was talking about setting aside people to leadership positions. We see that in Acts chapter 13. It talked earlier in this, this book about how Timothy was set aside for leadership. They laid their hands upon him and, and sent him off. Paul's like, don't be in a rush to just call people to certain le levels of leadership. But again, you think where Timothy was, like people had already been kicked out of leadership roles. Like the first thing Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3 to 4, he says, remain at Ephesus so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. Like the first thing, there's already people who have been kicked out of the church. He's actually to go and he's to kick more people out of leadership positions. And so, of course, Timothy probably has, he's like, okay, we need to fill these spots. We need to fill them quick. Paul's warning to him, hey, don't be hasty. Don't do it quickly. And why? Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, take part, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself free from sin. Rushing people into leadership positions without properly vetting them or getting to know them could put the wrong people in there, could cause sin, could cause damage, and the one who put them in the position can share in that sin. Again, Timothy surely has this burden to do this. It's kind of this thing like don't be pragmatic. There's a spot to fulfill it. This is how we can think in worldly terms. The church is like, hey, don't be so quick. Yes, there are great needs. Find the right person in the right time. Even as, as we kind of, as we got going early on, like I think next week, two weeks from now, we'll be celebrating two years as a church. But like early on, people are like, hey, well, who's going to be an elder? Who's going to be a leader? And say, hey, we, we can't rush this process. It takes time to get to know people. It takes time to get to see where people are at doctrinally and what page we're on. But I, reading just that, this passage, I don't know about you, but it gives me an increasing healthy fear of God. Don't just rush people into these places. So we've talked about how to honor elders, when to take away honor from elders. Ultimately, though, honoring God above all else. Then we run into verse 23. I, I love it. In reading, you're like, there's a flow to the passage. You're like, what? Why is this here? Paul writes, 
and maybe yours is in brackets because it's just like seems like out of place, no longer keep only, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I'm actually really thirsty, so just reading that sparks on. <laughs> Why I love that. Why would Paul say that? I just want you to see here. This is an example of a good shepherd, of a good elder, like just caring for him in the midst of these like pretty heavy duty instructions. He stops and focuses on Timothy's health, on something small. I, I love this point. One commentator points out, one can imagine Timothy contemplating tensions regarding care of widows, elder struggles, staying objective, keeping a pure heart, and, and grumbling. This all makes me sick to my stomach, or it's enough to give you ulcers, <laughs> right? And Paul and Timothy had labored long enough. Paul knew Timothy so well. He knew he actually did have stomach ailments and like frequently got sick. And so he's putting on all these like pressure situations, these burdens of ministry, and he's like, hey, don't drink only water. Make sure you, you drink some wine. And when we're talking about wine, we're talking about real wine, not grape juice. But why wine? And I'm just leaning on MacArthur here as, as he wrote about it, but water in the ancient world was impure and the carrier of diseases such as dysentery, right? Making you continue to go to the washroom. Paul's advice to use a little wine would help safeguard Timothy's health from the sickness producing effects of polluted water. And I guess it was actually common medical knowledge within that time from a number of people from Pliny, Plutarch, Hippocrates, there's all these writers that like you could drink a little bit of wine it could help guard you against some of these infections you get from drinking impure water. But I love we also just see here, I just want us to see God used men to write the word of God using their vocabularies and personalities. And we just see Paul's uh, care for Timothy, his shepherd heart, his care and concern. I love he like stops the, the letter to care for him. And, and I pray all of us can kind of develop that heart for each other. To, like to know those, those details of each other's life. And we can't know each other all in that way. But even as we take time after and, and we fellowship and get to know one another, maybe God willing have people in our homes and our small groups, we can get to know each other to that level. Like how's that thing going in your life? And I'm, never, I'm not going to be the one recommending people to drink a little wine. But I will recommend you to drink a lot of water. Sir, I just, I just read this article uh, that men need to drink like 3.7 liters on average to stay hydrated. I've been trying to do that. <laughs> That's really hard. <laughs> so like that would be one like just encouragement for you, man, drink more water, actually. But just like, man, to have that care in the midst of some heavy-duty stuff, stop, put that away. Actually, how are you doing? Like, oh, I, I love that. I love that. May God do that in us. And one more thing I just want us to see here, just to think about. Why didn't Paul just heal Timothy? He was an apostle. Just, just think about that for a moment. But no, he, he, he told him to work with the sickness that he had. God doesn't heal everyone. 
And Paul, who was an apostle, he didn't just heal everyone. God uses sickness and disease in order to accomplish his purposes. I still believe the Lord, the Lord's sovereign that God still heals today. But it's just interesting. The apostle Paul writing to Timothy, this is the advice he gives him. We need to take note of that. It flies in the face of a false teaching that says, hey, you need to be healthy completely if you're walking with God. Timothy wasn't. Paul wasn't. We shouldn't expect that either. Going on to verses 24 to 25, still thinking about leadership in the church, kind of going off of that uh, verse 22, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. We have verses 24 to 25. I want us to see here, God will expose every leader and every one. Paul writes this, the sins of some people are conspicuous. That means obvious. I don't know if, if anyone uses the word conspicuous. I have never used it before. I'm, what does that mean? The sins of some people are obvious, conspicuous, going before them to judgment. The sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, are easy to be seen. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. What is being said here? It's like there's some things you're going to see in people's lives It's going to be clear. Some sins, it's just it's blatant, it's in your face. Other things are not going to come again until the judgment. That's when they're going to be known. Other people are going to see, oh, you're going to see their good deeds. Some good deeds are going to be remain hidden. You're not going to see them until that day, until that judgment day. I think Paul's basically saying to Timothy, you know, do your best to make the best decisions for leaders. Right? He didn't want to get the analysis paralysis. I don't know if you've ever heard that, like you, there's all these options and you're kind of burning, you don't know how to move forward, there's such a weight to decisions you're going to make. It's like, hey, Timothy, you're going to do your best. You're not, you're not going to actually see everything. So it's going to be okay because ultimately on that day, on the day of judgment, everything is going to be seen, everything is going to come to light. I don't know about you though. Maybe not in choosing leadership. So isn't that a challenge in life for, for us for many things? Isn't we have these decisions to make and we don't always see so clear? But you just have like what's in front of you. You seek God for wisdom. And no one's like 100%. I always make the best decisions. But in, in seeking the Lord for wisdom and bringing other people to pray and talk with you, we make our, our best decision. We can't just stop from moving forward because we don't know anything. We'll never get to the place where we have everything in front of us. How is, it, how is the future going to turn out? I don't know. We need to make decisions and move forward, trusting God. But what I really am encouraged here, I think there's a principle here. As he, as he talks about the sins of some people are conspicuous or obvious, going before them to judgment. Sins of others appear later. They appear later in judgment. Friends, I just want to bring this to your attention. One day, everything will be exposed. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There, there's things that we can keep hidden. There's sins we can keep hidden. We can keep in the dark. One day it's going to be exposed to the light of God. They're good works. They're good things that we can do and no one knows. And God bless that. And one day it'll be exposed to the light of God. But we will all one day have to give an account before him. 
And if you hear that, and, and, if, and if that makes you uneasy, if, if you feel scared about that, I would, do you know Jesus Christ? Like, that's the thing. That's the mercy that we can find in the Lord Jesus. That though we sin, if you're like, man, I know I have sin. I know I have things hidden in the claws I don't want anyone to know about. Well, friends, Jesus Christ, again, I said, lived a perfect life, took the, his, your sins upon himself on the cross, and then died for them, was buried and rose again. And if you would put your faith and trust in him, those sins that no one knows, you confess that before the Lord, asking for forgiveness, you can find eternal life, forgiveness with him, peace with God. And so, friends, even as, as, as Christians, as believers, what will that be like for us? We know that one day everything we have, we will have to give an account, not in, not in judgment in terms of heaven or hell, but what do we do with what was given to us, with the knowledge that we had, with the resources that we had? I think in light of this, we should keep short accounts with God, with one another. We should often be at the throne of grace. I mean, prayer, seeking God's mercy, seeking his wisdom, he, God never wants, he doesn't withhold that from us. If you're like, I really need wisdom. I want to do your will. I want to walk in it. God, he's going he's gonna to let us know. He's going to help us grow in our understanding of that. So we see here in this, this section, honoring leaders within the church, how to honor elders, particularly those whose focus was preaching and teaching, honoring God above all, and, and now, though, there's this, there's this transition in the letter as he talks now not leadership in the church, leadership without the church. How do you honor those people? If you look with me, verses 1 to 2, giving honor to employers. He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So in the context, there's, a, there's an actual slave-master relationship that's being talked about. This was the norm in the Roman Empire. I've heard some people say like a quarter of the Roman Empire was slaves. I've heard even higher, a third. This was like a normal relationship within the empire. And so within that relationship, it's like how, you need to honor your masters as worthy. Paul says something similar using the same language, Colossians 3 22 to 24, just read that for us. Colossians 3, 22 to 24, Paul says this, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, like not just when they're looking, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Think about that, that you would have your, your bondservant regard them, your own masters, as worthy of all honor. He's calling the slave to do his best unto the Lord. Think about for any slave or any person, we know this to be true, if you claim to be Christian, like, yes, I'm a Christ follower, now there's a standard. Now people are watching you. Will you live up to what you said you hold to? Because what does it say? 
Regard them as your own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. For even slaves who are like, yes, I follow Jesus Christ, and they're cursing or fighting against their masters, that's their witness. They're taking away from what God wants to accomplish. Friends, the early church would often gather and pray. I have this. This is from church history, 112 A.D., I don't think this is on a Sunday. I think it's on another day, but it says this. They regularly met before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses among themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God. This is a, a pagan reflecting on the Christians. They, they gather together. They worship Jesus Christ. And also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, robbery adultery, to commit no breach of trust, so they would, the, the early Christians would gather together before the, the sun would come up. Slaves would be included in this gathering. They would sing songs to Jesus Christ. And they'd say, hey, we want to live lives that are pleasing to him, free from theft, free from robbery. We want to be about truth. We want to be pure. And they'd like pray for one another and then go on about their day. Amazing. What an example to follow so that the, the slave to his master could even serve him well. And no, friends, as we, as we see like slaves in the Bible, I just want to pause there for a moment. Think about this. Robert Yarbrough says this, Paul urged slaves who could obtain freedom to do so. 1 Corinthians 7, 21. He called on Philemon to receive his escaped slave Onesimus back as a brother. Philemon 16. Yet like other New Testament figures, including Jesus, Paul's immediate goal in ministry was not revolutionary change of the social order, It was preaching and teaching the gospel for the sake of establishing groups of Christian believers and thereby ultimately redeeming the world. That's what Jesus was doing. This is what Paul was doing. But think about this. So they weren't immediately being like, hey, done with this. There's freedom. Throw your master to the curb. They're like, this relationship that already exists, can you honor them? But friends, it was the gospel in people's hearts that actually led to the the destruction of slavery. I'm talking within the British Empire. I don't know if you've heard of William Wilberforce. He was in the British Parliament. He fought against the abolishment of slavery, accomplished it in 1833. If you don't know about him, watch the movie Amazing Grace. Great movie. So just when people are like, man, there's slavery in the Bible, it's like, yeah, but who, who dealt with abolishing slavery? It was Christians. But so for us, as we look at this passage, for those of us who work for other people, who have jobs, who are employed by someone, how can we think through this? How can we give honor to our employers so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled? I think quite simply, and this is thinking about those employers who don't know Jesus, Right? As a witness to them, work hard as to the Lord. Speak well of him or her. Show respect. Just like do the best job that you can. And maybe for some who are in a situation, have an employer who it's maybe a terrible situation, how can you still like keep your mouth closed, like no gossip, and do the best you can while you're there and finish well? Because if they're like, like, yeah, I'm a Christian, Now, everything is being filtered through that, however you act. 
You're like, oh, but you don't know. It's a terrible situation. But like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to give God's teaching, the name of Christ. It's going to bring it to disrepute. It's going to drag us through the mud. And so we have to be careful about that. And the second part of giving honor talks about giving honor to a believing master. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. As in like the slave shouldn't be like, oh, oh, you're a believer, I'm a believer, okay. I'm not going to do this. No, it's like you actually want to do a better job. It's not saying that they're slacking for those who don't know the Lord. And you're a Christian, you're like, okay, now I'm going to work harder. But it's like there's a double blessing. So even if you are a Christian and you work for a Christian, there is a, a double blessing to that. As in you work hard for your boss, that's pleasing to God. But the one who receives the benefit is also a Christ follower. It can use those resources uh, to God's benefit for his kingdom purposes. And Paul kind of ends this section, teach and urge these things. Like these are the things you need to be about. Again, maybe there's a whole letter. He keeps saying over and over again. He gives this instruction and like teach these things. Give some instruction like live these things, urge these things, proclaim these things. But friends, we need to see, we need to know to give honor to elders, to give honor to employers, it only can happen if we first give honor to God. Right? If we're not honoring God with our lives, with our lips, with our feet, with everything that we have, then how are we giving honor in these other relationships? So again, it goes back to having a right relationship with God through Faith in Jesus Christ. This is the only way that we can give honor how honor is due. If you'll bow with me, I'd like to close this word in prayer. Oh God, I, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to proclaim your word. And, and I just pray that that which is from you seal in our hearts. That which is from me may it fall to the side. Oh, Lord, I pray even now uh, prepare our hearts for communion. And, and just I, I stop and remember, Lord, Redemption Edmonton. You hear, bless their gathering if they still are this morning. Bless that church. Further your gospel there. May, may you continue to build up churches who proclaim your word in this country, Lord. But seal this word in our hearts. Help us first to honor you. Help us to see how we can do that through our relationship through Jesus Christ, O oh Lord. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.